Chapel, Mason City. The book of Ephesians is one of the prison letters. If you've ever heard that term, the prison epistles, it's written by the Apostle Paul, which we'll talk about uh, him a little bit later. Paul's letters can be essentially split into two different categories. You have the early and the latter letters of Paul. The early ones were written on his missionary journeys, and the latter ones were written after his imprisonment in Jerusalem. All of this stuff is, you can kind of read the book of Acts and you get like an overview uh, layout of how Paul uh, kind of did this. So of the latter group, there's a subgroup within that called the prison epistles. And um, does anybody know why they're called the prison epistles? That's <laughs> a total, that's a gimme, man. Come on. Because you know, he was in prison when, they, when he wrote them. So I'm just making sure that, the, is this mic on? No, very good. So you call them prison epistles, and then that just begs the question, right? Why was the Apostle Paul in jail uh, in the first place? Well, if you read Acts 28, you see that Paul was put in prison um, because he was accused by the Jews in Jerusalem of teaching against the law of Moses, against the people, and against the temple. Uh, and that made these Jews essentially want to kill him. And so he uh, was taken to Caesarea after it being uh, apprehended to stand trial before the governor Felix, but he had to wait for two years without a trial. After that, Paul appealed to Caesar, and he was sent to Rome to appear to, uh, before the emperor. So he was going to bring his case before uh, the uh, Roman emperor. There, he was put under house arrest for two more years, but he still preached and taught the gospel. So the book of Acts ends with Paul still in Rome, in a house arrest type of situation, waiting for his trial before Caesar. So you notice that the end of the book of Acts kind of, you know, it's interesting. It's almost like the story keeps going, right? Now, the four letters that Paul wrote from prison talk about him being in jail. So they all mention this directly, which is kind of interesting because as you go through there now, you'll see Paul talking in Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Philippians. You'll see him mentioning uh, that he was in prison and uh, you'll be able to connect those things. Now, there's some application that jumps right out here. You remember in the book of Philemon and in other books, Paul will say when he's in prison, he, he begins the letters and he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, isn't that an interesting way to refer to being incarcerated by Rome? Isn't that interesting? See, because the apostle Paul, I think this is just a super powerful application, right? Because the apostle Paul, he said, I am a prisoner by the will of Jesus. He saw his circumstances. He saw the sovereign hand of God in his circumstances. You see, he didn't see himself as a victim. He saw himself as a person that was under the sovereign hand of God. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Like God had him in jail. And so while he was there, he made the most of it. He didn't just sit and complain about the food or something or, you know, or anything like that. He said, uh, this is a good opportunity to write and to uh, evangelize people. I love it in the book of Philippians where it says that the, the guards in Caesar's house were becoming Christians, you know? Can you imagine such a thing? That's just amazing. When a person sees opportunities rather than seeing themselves as a helpless victim, that person is going somewhere in life. Now, the place of writing, so these prison epistles were written in this two-year period mentioned in Acts 28, this house arrest type of situation. He was in his own rented house, uh, but he was chained to a guard. He was still locked up, so it's comparable to house arrest. 
Now, the order of writing, they go uh, Colossians, Ephesians, then Philemon. Those letters were taken to their respected audiences by a man named Tychicus, and then after that, the book of Philippians was written. So, but all four of those were written in this same two-year stint where Paul was in house arrest. Let's go on to the next point. I'm going to give you some background of the book of Ephesians. Before we do that, you might wonder, why would we do a study like this? Why would we study the background of a Bible book? You know, honestly, a lot of people just hop into the Bible, they open it wherever it goes, and they're just looking for some sort of like quote to kind of get them through the day. And that's kind of how they approach the Bible. It reminds me of a guy that was walking down the street and he was sobbing uncontrollably and the tears were streaming down his face. Uh, You know, you come up to the guy and you say, what's wrong? He goes, I have nowhere to live. And then he pushes this piece of paper in your face and you read this thing, you inspect it, and you realize it's a letter from the DNR saying that they are going to relocate owl houses in Lime Creek Nature Center. And you say, why are you crying? And he goes, look, house first. And you say, man, that's talking about owls. <laughs> now you, you say that's ridiculous, but that is how people approach the Bible. I mean, it really is. They just pop it open anywhere and they just pull some statement out of it and they assume it applies to them. And they don't even, they don't know the context. They don't know the background. They don't know who it's addressed to. They don't know, you know, uh, who wrote it, why they wrote it. Silly illustration there. I, I worked hard on that one. <laughs> the man who wrote Ephesians, the Apostle Paul. Now, until modern times, Pauline authorship was never debated. But modern times, let me, let me tell you this. If you're a new believer, um, one thing that can be disheartening as a Christian is you start to learn quickly as you start to study the Bible that there are... Uh, history channel programs, and all kinds of other what we would call liberal approaches to the Bible. Not liberal in the sense of Republican, Democrat, not talking like that. Talking about liberal approaches to the scripture and these liberal theologians, as they call them, they, it's almost their MO to just go and question every single thing about everything where it comes to the authenticity of the Bible and all this. So like I said, until modern times, Pauline authorship was never even debated. In fact, you know, the good majority of the early church fathers, Clement and so on, a whole list of them, ascribe this letter to Paul. And the internal evidence is strong. The writing style uh, looks just like the other letters that are undisputed that Paul clearly wrote. And then if you'll notice in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he identifies himself as the author there. Flip to chapter 3, verse 1, if you would, please. Where he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, and so on. So he identifies himself as the author of this letter two times. Just want to encourage you with that. You know, you're all hungry for the Bible and you turn on History Channel and it says, Mysteries of the Bible. That is, you know, I'm not going to give you my opinion on that because, you know, yeah, anyhow, don't trust that stuff <laughs> most times. We'll just say that. Don't get discouraged. 
you know, by those things. It's that makes good TV. You know, it makes good television. Why the God? You know, uh, that's a tangent. I'm gonna stop that. Okay. So Paul was about 60 years old when he wrote this letter. He calls himself Paul the Aged within the letter. Now, Paul, this man, there physically, you know, through tradition, they describe him as this like short, bald, hunched over guy with eye problems. Uh, he wasn't anything to look at, but man, he could write some Bible books, right? And uh, he was a devout Jew and a Pharisee before his conversion to Christianity. So what that means is he was an incredibly strict Jew. And he believed, in a nutshell, that God was pleased when you keep all the rules, and when you don't keep all the rules, God's going to judge you. And he was a, a legalist, is what they call that. And he was very tedious as a Pharisee about keeping every little doctrine that he could. Um, he had an experience later on when he realized that the law of God was not only a list of externals, but it had to do with what was going on in the heart. And Paul was, you know, this was happening around his conversion, and... Um, so this is a little bit about Paul. Now, he was so zealous for Judaism that he was actually out persecuting Christians. He thought that Jesus was a heretic, blasphemer, and all of his followers were blaspheming Judaism. And so he thought, I am going to be so zealous for God, I'm going to persecute these people. And so you know how it goes. In Acts chapter 9, Paul is on his way to Damascus to apprehend Christians, to bring them in to be tried and uh, on the way there, a bright light shines and hears a voice speak to him that says, Paul, Paul. Well, at that time, his name was Saul, right? Remember, he went from Saul to Paul. And Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, says the resurrected Christ. And in that moment, Paul said, Lord, who, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. He's down on the ground. And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And essentially, Jesus, paraphrasing here, says, go into the city, Damascus. You're going to be blind for three days, and then a guy's going to come and pray for you, and he's going to you know, tell you what I want you to do. So that's what happens. Paul's led by the hand into the city that he was going to persecute, and now he's going in as a follower of Christ. He's been transformed on the road to Damascus. And as he sits there for three days blind, probably a long three days, all of a sudden, a man comes in. And lays his hands on him and prays for him. And he says, Brother Saul, Paul, receive your sight. And he does. And this man's name is Ananias. And Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit at this point. And he says to him, uh, essentially paraphrasing, he says, Paul, you're a chosen tool of God to take the message to the Gentiles, which that's just a term for anybody that wasn't a Jew. By the way, Pharisees thought Gentiles were essentially like just kindling for the fire. You know, they... <laughs> They did not like Gentiles. But here God's saying, Saul, you're to take the message to the Gentiles, right? And then also in there too, if you read Acts, it says that he told him, Paul, how many things that he would have to suffer for Jesus' namesake. Now, isn't that an interesting way to call people into ministry? Tell them what they're going to suffer? You know, I think probably some honesty like that could be helpful in the body of Christ today, right? Rather than saying, if you come follow Jesus, everything's going to get great and just the best time of your life and no sacrifice involved, just, you know, pick up some Jesus whenever you got a little bit of time and, you know, that's not how it works. Be when you become a Christian, some things get easier, certainly, lots of them, but some things get more difficult. All of a sudden, one of the hardest things for me, one of the hardest things is you 
get into this battle when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and you say, whoa, I have this new desire to do all this stuff like Jesus, but, but wait a minute, there's this thing that's fighting against that inside of me. And oh my gosh, uh, you know, that now there's a battle going on that never was before. There's all kinds of suffering that comes along with being a Christian. And I think that's an honest, uh, you know, thing to say. It's interesting that Paul was, you know, he showed him all the, the, the language says all the things though. So he told Paul, oh yeah, you're going to be whipped, beaten, stoned, thrown out of town. You'll be left for dead. You'll think I have near-death experience, third heaven and all that. You'll go back into town, start preaching. You'll be shipwrecked out in the ocean, the Adriatic Sea. Yeah, all this stuff's going to happen, Paul. Hey, you want to come and get involved in men's group? You know, <laughs> What a transformation, though, from violent persecutor to zealous propaganda, right? This is a great application for you here today. Maybe you've never wanted to serve the Lord Jesus because you carry something from your past that you think is so terrible. Have you killed people in the name of Christ? I mean, Paul essentially was involved with violent persecution of the church, and God turned his life around, filled him with the Holy Spirit, and caused him to fulfill the purpose he was created for. And he can do the same thing for you. Nobody's too far gone that they can't be saved and be used by the Lord. Nobody. I find great comfort in that. When and where Ephesians was written, next point. The book of Ephesians was written around 62 AD. It was in the 60s, man. <laughs> we talked about this already while he was in imprisoned, imprisonment in Rome. Now, just to give you some perspective, 62 AD... The cross was about 30 A.D., roughly, okay? So 62 A.D. Now, I want to add something else to the timeline here, perspective-wise. Revelation, chapter 2. Jesus is writing letters to churches. The church of Ephesus is included in those letters. And in the letter to Ephesus, he says some good things about him. But he says that you've left your first love. In just, what, 40 years, a church that the Apostle Paul fed and tended and ministered to, just in 40 years, they had plummeted into dead orthodoxy. Sad. The Ephesians church, this church, leaves a legacy of spiritual decay. Interesting. It's also hopeful in the book of Revelation. Jesus said to them, he said, if you will just turn, remember, and do the things that you did at first, I won't take my lampstand from you. I won't take my presence from you. If you will just stop dead in your tracks of dead orthodoxy and sin, if you will just remember that you used to be in love with me, and you will turn, and you will do the works that you did at first... There's a strong application in that for Christians today, too. And I'm going to ask a really, really difficult question. Are you more in love with Jesus today than you have ever been? Why not? If not. Now, to whom it was written, there are a couple main views. The first one is that it was a specific letter written to a specific church, right? To the Ephesians. We get that because verse 1 Paul the Apostle to the saints who are in Ephesus. But there's a second view that would, it's called the encyclical view, the cycle, that this letter was written, meant to go, cycle of churches that were in. 
meant to go all the way around. Now, the reason that that is a, a view is because in you know, a lot of the ancient, the most, the oldest manuscripts, it says the Apostle Paul to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Like there's a space in there. The word Ephesus isn't there in a lot of the early, early manuscripts of the Bible. It's almost like fill in the blank, like it's meant to be written to the church at large. And then the third view, which I subscribe to, where I think it's probably both. I mean, I think it was, you know, written, intended to be them, but it's also intended to be read by the whole church. And so that's just kind of a, you know, an interesting thing to think about. Like if you have an RSV Bible, it's not going to say saints who are in Ephesus, you know, because they come from a different tradition of manuscripts that they're, you know, that's where the RSV comes from, a different group of manuscripts. So <clears throat> the city of Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. This is modern day Turkey. What was the place like? Well, commerce, they were one of the three leaders of international trade, so it was a very wealthy place. The arts and sciences, they, Corinth and Ephesus were known for philosophers, poets, artists, actors, and so on. The religion. Now, a couple of different religions permeated the area. Um, one was the worship of Diana, also the Greek name known as Artemis. And I brought a statue of uh, Diana. Now, this is Diana, and uh, she's a looker. And so, uh, multi-breasted, and the, the multi-breast represents fertility and, um, you know, protection of pregnancy, diff different things like that, like the whole reproductive process. And so, uh, this is the, the shrine, there's, this is the idol that represents Diana. Now, the temple of Diana is in Ephesus. Archaeologists have excavated it. By the way, archaeologists have uncovered like 25% of the city of Ephesus, which is just remarkable. And so the temple uh, where they worshipped Diana or Artemis was known as one of the seventh wonders of the world. These statues are found everywhere. Archaeologists have found just, you know, hundreds of them. Um, this particular one is from an, uh, a museum in Turkey uh, today, and they believe that this is a copy from the original that was in the temple um, back in the time of, of Paul there. So the worship of Artemis involved various rituals, including animal sacrifice, processions. There were priests and priestesses that served in the temple. Some archaeology seems to point to the fact that there, to the idea that there were cult prostitutes like you had found in Corinth, what this gets at is they believed that worshiping this goddess involved like explicit, you know, practices that I won't discuss with young years, but uh, it was a pagan religion. And so the area was dominated by that. By the way, I wonder if a religion would get really popular if part of the worship was, you know, <laughs> sexual practices, probably so. Hard to get people to turn from that, you know. Like, you guys got to turn from this stuff. This is a false religion. I don't know, man. I got to be to the temple here about, you know, it's kind of a weird thing. Also, the imperial cult of Augustus, the state religion in the Roman Empire, was established to honor the first emperor of Rome. Essentially, this cult, what they would do is they just deified the Roman emperor. They worshiped him as God. Remember, that was like the whole thing with Christians. If you didn't say that Caesar was, you know, Lord and God, like, that's, you would die for that. And so... Those two uh, religions were, you know, the big, uh, the big two in Ephesus. It's interesting. We turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, please. 
The influence of these religions on the church in Ephesus probably led Paul to saying something like this, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Likely, he's getting at the pagan practices that much of the Ephesian church was involved in before their conversion to Christ. And that is just a good application, couple of verses right there. Uh, I think this is very apropos for Christians in 2023, to have no fellowship with works of darkness, but rather expose them, right? It's a good, timeless piece of advice. Now, what the church of Ephesus was like, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he addressed a community of both Jews and Gentiles, mostly Gentiles, however, though. Now, these were believers that needed a clear understanding of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be the church, and how to live in a way that pleased God. So you're going to see those things in the letter to the Ephesians. Some of the Jews in the church had been converted at Pentecost. Do you remember at Pentecost when the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church and they all spoke with tongues, and then it listed a whole bunch of other uh, you know, nationalities of people that were hearing the disciples speaking in tongues in their native language. In that list, it says Asians, and that would be referring to people you know, in this area. So a lot of Jews that were in the church, some of the Jews that were in the Ephesian church were no doubt likely converted at Pentecost, and um, that's how they came to know the Lord. During Paul's second stay in Ephesus, he encountered believers there that didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. You remember that in Acts chapter 19? Uh, he goes uh, to these, it's, Acts says that they're disciples. And he says, did you guys get the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we didn't even know that there was such a Holy Spirit. And he says, what did you get baptized? And he says, the baptism of John. And Paul said, that was the baptism of the remission of sins and to believe on Jesus who was to come. And then at that point, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul laid hands on them and prayed and they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they spoke with tongues. It's pretty an interesting, exciting part of the book of Acts. Now, after a couple of months of trying to persuade the Jews in the synagogue, Paul spent two years in the hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus preaching the word consistently day after day. Can you imagine being at some of those meetings? You know, I mean, boy, you watch videos of like R.A. Torrey and D.L. Moody and, or not videos of those guys, but you know, uh, you read about those guys, but videos of like Billy Graham or something like that. And these big, huge, you know, uh, even Calvary Chapel, these big tent things. But can you imagine being at the Hall of Tyrannus listening to Paul, <laughs> you know, like expound the scriptures over and over? Two years of influence. And by the way, 40 years later, left their first love. Here's a good point. You could have the best Bible teacher in the world, but if you don't have a personal growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you can turn away from him. Wow. Now, the converts in Ephesus likely included Jews and Gentiles who had just come out of idol worship. The conversions of these people would have been significant given the hostility towards Paul, which led to the riot in the city. You remember that from the book of Acts? They're all rioting. Great is Diana. <laughs> and they're two hours. I mean, they're chanting crazy mob. The Gentiles' departure from idolatry was also dramatic as they brought out all their pagan magic books and burnt them in the town square, making a clean, powerful break from their pagan past. Turn to Acts chapter 19, if you would, please. Acts chapter 19. Verse 
In Acts chapter 19, I just want to look at verses 19 and 20. Before I became a Christian, I was into like, uh, you know, the power of positive thinking, new age movement, the secret law of attraction, kind of stuff like that, this new agey sort of stuff. I used to DJ at rave parties in Los Angeles area, and it was like really a new agey sort of place, you know? And so it was pretty interesting because I, even as a pastor, you know, I'd, as a Christian, I'd kept a whole book of CDs that I had that I used to DJ with. And it was pretty interesting on each one of the CDs, I had printed different chakras, you know, because I mean, I was in this stuff. And so when I was teaching through the book of Acts here, uh, a couple of three years ago, um, came across this verse. Acts 19, uh, verses 19 and 20. Look at verse 19. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So they took Harry Potter and, uh, you know, that was a joke, but not really. Do you know what I mean? If you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, you know that it's, that's exactly it. I'm going to get an email now. Don't email me. Take it up with the Lord. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. But look at right before that, it says, uh, they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all and they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot. That's a substantial collection of Eckhart Tolle books and Deepak Chopra and Oprah Winfrey books, right? That's a whole collection of them. And so you'll have to forgive me, but I, I think that that's a pretty close modern day parallel. Oprah says, you can believe whatever you want. Everything goes to Jesus. Uh, it's harmful, you know? Now, when I came across this, I went home that day and I was like, I got to get these CDs. I took the CDs out of my house. I went to the dumpster. I was like, get this pagan stuff out of my house, man. I want nothing to do with this stuff anymore. And uh, it's interesting how merciful God is to you, to me. Why was Ephesians written? Let's move on. The letter doesn't address a specific problem as does like Galatians, for instance, or Colossians deals with a pre-Gnostic New Age sort of heresy. Um, you know, Corinthians deals with carnality. Ephesians doesn't really address a direct problem, but scholars do believe that a lot of the same problems they were experiencing in Colossae were also happening in the Ephesian area. They're pretty close to each other geographically. Why was it written? Well, it was written because the church needed to be equipped. So the Ephesian church started in like 55 AD-ish. And so remember when Paul was writing here? 6280, it's in the 60s, man. So they were new believers, relatively, and they needed to be taught essentially how to grow up in the Lord. But before Paul just gets in and starts telling them what to do, he lays a doctrinal foundation of who they are in Christ, which all leads up to him then saying, therefore, in light of this, here's what you are to do. How then should we live? And so that's the point of the Ephesians is essentially equipping the church to grow up and live in a way that pleases the Lord with the correct motivations. Now, the general characteristics of the Ephesian epistle, it's been called the Swiss Alps of the Bible uh, because this, the theology, it's just like the highest concepts that you can... You know, if you wanted to read a book that is just the height of theology, it's also been called the Grand Canyon of Scriptures. 
Here's a quote from church historian Philip Schaff. I really like this. It says, It certainly is the most spiritual and devout composed of an exalted and transcendent state of mind where theology rises into worship and meditation into oration. It is the epistle of the heavenlies. I really like that, where theology rises into worship. That's important, right? Because some people worship, but they have no idea what they're doing. They don't even know who they're worshiping. They don't know the Bible. They don't, they don't even know anything about Jesus, yet they're worshiping very zealously. And then on the other side, you have theologians that it's just all dead orthodoxy in their mind. And I'm not saying everyone is like that. I'm just saying there's, there are people in both of those camps. But what he says here is Paul was somebody different. He had a brilliant mind that could dissect theology with precision, but he was also a worshiper. He worshiped in spirit and truth. Now, let's get on to the last point, which is a brief survey of the book of Ephesians. The key words, um, and I want to give you some homework here. The key words, um, in Christ or in him. I want you to see how many times you can find that in the Ephesian letter. So when you come back next week, have them all highlighted in your Bible, either the term in Christ or in him. And we'll see if we come up with the same number. That's definitely one of the main points of the book is what does it mean to be in Christ? Love is another key word. 14 times the word love or agape or a version of it shows up in this letter, which let's think about this for a second. 40 years later, they left their first love. 14 times in the letter, it talks about love. Do you think that's the word of prophecy coming from the Holy Spirit through Paul? Trying to warn them ahead of time? Application, right? When you fall, guarantee God tried to warn you first. <laughs> Key verses. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Love that. <sighs> Chapter 1, verse 22 through 23. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One of the main points of Ephesians is how Christ is the head of the body of the church. He's the head of the body of Christ. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Chapter 2, 19. Chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. Chapter 2, verse 19 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You are part of the church, which is like a temple, that is built on the foundation, on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ to be a dwelling place of God. That is a strong couple of verses right there. That truth is so 
You say, I don't have any purpose for my life. Oh my gosh, I'm so depressed. Okay, well, give your life to Christ and become part of the greatest structure, the greatest building that will withstand any kind of destruction that'll last throughout eternity. Become part of that. You have no purpose for your life. Come on now. Chapter four, verses four through six. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called into in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. How many times does the word one show up in just those verses? That's a key word in the book of Ephesians, the word one, because Paul's talking about how in Christ, we're all united. There's no black, white, Jew, Gentile, male, female, Greek, non-Greek. Everybody is one that comes to Christ. Christ has created this new thing, um, the church. Chapter 5, verse 21, major point of the book of Ephesians. Chapter 5, verse 21 says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, some of you men might say, I didn't know that verse was there, but I knew the one where it says, wives, submit to your husband. It's like the only Bible verse you've ever memorized in your life. But that whole section starts with this verse. And by the way, Ephesians 5.21 sets the tone for everything said underneath of it. It's all about Christians being mutually submitted to one another. I heard a guy put it like this. In the church, nobody looks down on anybody because everybody's looking up to everybody else, right? We're all submitted to one another. I'm here to be your servant. You're here to serve me, you know. Christians shouldn't even be able to get through the front door together, right? Because everybody's like, oh, after you. Like, oh, after you. No, 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 after you, brother. No! <laughs> then finally, chapter 6, verse 10 through 11. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Spiritual attack, spiritual warfare is dealt with in this book. You have the outline if you took one of the paper copies, but essentially you can divide the book of, the book of Ephesians into two main sections. You have chapters 1 through 3 and then chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3 would be the doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6 would be the duty right? Now, it's very important that you know who you are in Christ before you know how to live in Christ. And so Paul does that. He takes half the letter, he talks about who you are in Christ, and then he takes the other half and talks about then how you should live. The prominent subjects, praying is actually pretty uh, prominent in the book of Ephesians. You see in prayer uh, in chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. By the way, if you struggle with prayer, let me give you a hint here. Look at chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. You say, I don't know the words to say in prayer. This is a good place to start. Just read Paul's prayers, and then you can get some insight from that. It'll help you. So prayer is a prominent subject. Then doctrine, uh, moving on, chapters 1 through 3, in this section, it says that God chose you, God predestined you, God adopted you, God made you acceptable to him, God redeemed you, God forgave your sins, God revealed the mystery of the church to you, God gave you an inheritance, God sealed you and filled you with the Holy Spirit. My goodness, I'm so tempted to talk more. You guys, can we do this for another hour? Uh, can't do it. I, that's why I have this clock mounted on the wall back there because I will get in trouble with the children's ministry. Another prominent subject, salvation by grace through faith. This was one of my first Bible verse memories right here. Uh, you've been saved uh, through, uh, by grace through faith. 
It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, so no one can boast. That is one of the clearest proclamations of the gospel. Listen, if you want to equip yourself against false teaching, which there is tons of it in this world, memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Because if you have those verses memorized, when somebody comes to you and says, no, it's not faith in Jesus is enough, it's faith plus sacraments. You've got to do all these things that the church tells you to do. It's not faith in Jesus alone. It's faith in Jesus plus you've got to get baptized. Well, you say, well, that can't be or else Ephesians 2, 8, 9 isn't true then. I would recommend memorizing those verses. Another prominent subject in the book of Ephesians is the church. In chapter one, you see the Ephesians is, or the church is a body. In chapter two, you see the church is a holy temple. In chapter three, you see the church is a mystery. In chapter four, the church is a group of new men and new women put on Christ, put off the old. In chapter five, you see the church is a bride. Man, have you ever thought of yourself as Jesus' bride? Well, get over yourself because that's what the Bible, he says that the church is the bride of Christ. The bridegroom takes joy in the bride. Man, if you're married, don't you take joy in your wife? Don't you just take joy in your wife? You look at her and say, oh, I just take joy. I'm just delighted in the fact that I'm married to you. Well, the Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. Amazing. And then in chapter 6, we see the church as a soldier. Another prominent um, feature of the book of Ephesians is the doctrine, well, some doctrine related to the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Interesting fact in the Greek, it would read like this, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul is telling the Ephesians that you need to be being filled. You need to be the sort of person that is being filled continuously with the Holy Spirit, right? So how do I do that? Well, you ask the Lord daily. You get before him and say, Lord, I surrender all. I need you to fill me with your power. I can't do it without you. And he'll do it. Then the practice in chapters four through six, walk in unity. The purpose of the church is to have pastors, teachers, evangelists, or pastor, teachers, evangelists, apostles, prophets to equip the saints for ministry. That's the purpose of the church. Or to walk in the new life, or to put off evil bitterness, clamor, wrath, anger, evil speaking, coarse jesting, fornication, foolish talking. All of those things are supposed to be set aside as a Christian. To walk in the light, chapter 5. Chapter 5, we're to walk wisely, not wasting time on useless things. Chapter 5, we're to walk in submission to one another in the marriage, in the home, in the workplace. Chapter 6, to put on the armor of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and we will stop here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is the main exhortation of the whole book. And it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And that's our prayer, Lord, that through this study that you would help us to walk in a way that is worthy of your glory. And we do ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.